Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Good morning. Nice to see you bright and early. <laughs> For those of you who were up a little bit late last night, so welcome to the New Blood Panel for 2019. This is always my favourite event of the whole festival. Um, it's uh, a treat for me, because I get to read a whole shed load of new novels, which is quite useful. It stops me getting stale. I see what fresh voices are doing with the genre, what, what younger people than me are finding exciting to write about. And that kind of gives me a kick up the backside and also indicates who I might like to push under a bus. <laughs> there's only so much room, there's only so many books you can buy. So we have four fascinating authors here this morning to talk to you about their work. And these books have some things in common. What they all have is a tremendously rich atmosphere. They're books that are immersive and they're compulsive. Once you start reading these books, you are transported into the world of the books and they draw you in. And what they also have is a sense of authenticity. These are books that actually feel like they have characters who are people you can recognize, people that you might know. Uh, and, and the worlds that they create also feel disturbingly real. Uh, immediately on my left here is Ayinkad Braithwaite, whose novel, uh, My Sister, the Serial Killer, kind of tells you a bit about it in the title <laughs> itself. Uh, Ayinkan uh, was born in, in Lagos, Nigeria, and has divided her time so far between Nigeria and the UK. Uh, she did a degree in law and creative writing, uh, and she had success with uh, slam poetry and short stories initially. Uh, this book is a, a dark comedy, I think it would be fair to say, about murder and sibling rivalry. Uh, and, and love, of course, love. Uh, it's a book that uh, has a, a fascinating engagement with moral ambiguity, I think. It won the Los Angeles Times Crime and Thriller Novel of the Year for 2019, um, and it was shortlisted for the Women's Prize here in the UK. Next to... Uh, no, at the far end here, we have Chris Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even paying attention. See, I was up late myself last night. Chris, Chris is the author of Scrublands. Chris is an Australian journal, former journalist. He was a journalist for more than 30 years, because he obviously started very young. Um, uh, covering mostly federal politics and international affairs, both for print and for TV. He worked in more than 30 countries, so that should give him a good crack at translation rights. <laughs> uh, and worked over six continents. Now, which one did you not do? <laughs> Antarctica. Oh. <laughs> and I tried. <laughs> and um, his, his, before, he, before he turned to, to making stuff up, uh, he wrote two award-winning non-fiction books, uh, The River, which is about the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia, uh, and The Coast, which is about the east coast of that country continent. Um, the River... Uh, was a one one prizes uh, and it was it was researched in the during the great drought of 2008 and 2009 uh, and that period and that experience inspired uh, scrublands both in terms of background and in terms of storytelling 
Uh, and this book is a, is a complex web of relationships and histories against the, the vivid backdrop of uh, a, a landscape struggling to survive. Never mind the people, the landscape itself is struggling to survive. Next to Oyinkan here is Geetha Lodge with uh, a book called She Lies in Wait. Uh, she read English at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, like Christopher Marlowe, uh, but with probably less business of spying on the side. Uh, began writing while she was at university and, and, and working as a playwright and uh, set up a touring theatre company that won awards at the Edinburgh Fringe and beyond. She wrote for young adults and children before she turned to crime. Uh, she Lies in Wait falls, I suppose, broadly into the category of, of psychological suspense. Now, that's a crowded field, and in the course of my reading over the year, I read a lot of these. So for something to stand out, as this does, has to be exceptional. So I'd really recommend this to you if you are interested in that form of writing at all. Uh, this has got a twin timeline. Six friends go off to camp in the woods. Uh, six friends and the little sister of one of them who doesn't come home. And 30 years later, a body turns up. Uh, a body turns up in a place that only the six who went camping knew about. And so it unravels through the course of the novel to a startling conclusion. Next to Geetha is Holly Watt with a novel, To the Lions. Uh, the title uh, comes apparently from a comment made by a news editor saying, who are you going to throw to the lions today, Holly? <laughs> Um, Holly has a background in investigative and undercover journalism. She worked for the Sunday Times and the Telegraph on their investigations team. She worked for The Guardian. She was at the heart of the stories about MPs' expenses. And the Panama Papers, her works cover international journalism and, as I say, undercover work. And she spent time uh, in, at the Washington Post on a scholarship there working for them. So, you know, the big stories, the big investigations and the papers that really do those things well. This is a tense thriller uh, that spans continents uh, and as journalists at the heart of it. It's vivid. It's about money and power and privilege and the way all of those things can be abused without us realising. It's great, got a great central character whose moral crusade is also tinged with personal ambition. So it's not just some sort of goody two-shoes. She's, she's got another side to her that's perhaps not quite so attractive and lovely. So the first thing I'm going to ask them to do is to tell us briefly uh, about, about their books. Uh, why should we read them? Why should you fall in love with it? Why should you rush out of this room to the book tent at the back and buy these books? Because believe me, you should. They're here because you should. Would you like to start, Oyinkan? Yeah. Um, good morning. Um, well, this afternoon, I think. But, um, okay, so my book is about, well, it's pretty much, I mean, it speaks, the title sort of speaks for itself, um, but it's about two sisters. The older sister, Corrida, is a nurse. The younger sister has an unfortunate habit of murdering her boyfriends. And um, the older sister has to, you know, so the younger sister, Ayala, she, Ayala will commit the murder and afterwards will call on her older sister to come and help her out to, you know, and um, Corrida, the older sister, she's a meticulous, she's a nurse, so she, she's figured out how to clean up a crime scene and, you know, get rid of the body and do all that, but she, she's a reluctant um, savior. Um, so, you know, but things sort of come to a head when 
um, the younger sister starts to date the guy that the older sister likes, at which point she has to sort of uh, make a choice or, you know, she's faced with the choice of knowing that um, her sister kills her boyfriends, but also she doesn't want to... Um, she wants to protect her sister. She, wants, she doesn't want to expose her sister. So that's basically what it's about. Why you should read it, um, I think, you know, I didn't realize it, but now looking back, I think it is a funny book. I think it's entertaining. And I think that it, um, it puts characters you wouldn't normally see um, in a very interesting scenario. And I think it, it, it uh, takes us into a world that we're not necessarily familiar with, yes. um, about, about a different culture. Yeah, because it's, it's based different in social, Nigeria. Different social norms. Yeah. 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 Not that I'm suggesting for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that that's what your life in Nigeria is like. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, at the heart of it also, there's, there's these, these complex family relationships and expectations. Yeah, I always kind of say that um, it was brilliant for me that it, I, I studied in Nigeria because I didn't have to deal with all the... Um, you know, what probably you guys had to deal with, but all the intricacies of crime scene investigation, because we don't have, as far as I know, a very um, refined crime scene investigation process. You know, I've, I've never come across like a detective in Nigeria or anything like that. I mean, we, we're not even big fans of our police there. Um, so um, I think it's much easier to get away with a crime in Nigeria than it would be, say, in the UK. So take note, anyone who's planning that. If your partner suggests a wee holiday in Nigeria, maybe you want to think twice about that. <laughs> Thank you. Chris, can you tell us a bit about Scrublands? Okay, the, the setup for Scrublands, this is not a spoiler because this is the first couple of pages of the book. We have a very remote Australian country town set out in this landscape. It's a real landscape. Uh, a drought-ravaged town, treeless plain, so flat you can see the curvature of the earth. People are clinging to normalcy. They're at, outside the local church. The young priest is up from a town, a, a larger town, to um, conduct the fortnightly church service. Everything seems completely normal. The young priest is out there talking to the parishioners, laughing, joking. He goes inside to don his vestments and prepare for the service, comes out a few minutes later with a gun and shoots five people dead. So that's the setup. The story proper begins a year later, where a rather damaged journalist called Martin Skarsden comes to town on what should be a kind of a routine assignment. Indeed, it's part of his rehabilitation as a journalist. And the assignment is simply to write about how the town is coping on the anniversary of these terrible shootings. But of course, the longer he stays in town, the more he begins to suspect that the conventional wisdom of why the priest, who himself is now dead, why he shot his parishioners. And one of the things that gets his mind going is that there are still people in the town who are willing to defend the priest. So that's the setup. Why you should read it? Well, to find out why the priest did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and along the way, I think, uh, meet a, a cast of fascinating characters, um, which presumably are based on the kind of people you encountered when you were 
working that area for your non-fiction book? You, there's, there's no one who's really based on a real person. Um, but I travelled out through that area at the height of the millennial drought, which lasted about a decade, and it's the worst drought in European settlement. And the town in the book is totally fictitious. It's not a fictionalised version of a real town, except for this. It has in common with a town that I spent a week in, an irrigation town with a river with no water in it. And that town was dying very quickly. Farmers were walking off their farms, banks were foreclosing, there was the ever-present spectre of suicide. And yet, on the other hand, there was this amazing resilience, uh, community spirit, you know, this mad optimism, and also this, <laughs> this um, gallows humour that was e everywhere. So that, that's, I visited that when I was writing my non-fiction books. So when I thought I'd try my hand at writing a crime book, I didn't have to search around for a setting because that was indelibly stamped on my mind. Thank you. Keitha, what about you? What's, what's, what's going to make us love this book? Why are we going to want to buy it? So I think the, the main feeling that I um, wanted to get across with the whole book was a sense of loss and a sense of nostalgia for what is lost. Uh, so the book set in the New Forest, which is one of the most nostalgic places I can think of, feels very unspoilt to a large degree. And these teenagers who once were just having a night out, partying, doing all the things that teenagers do with their drink and their sort of potential romantic liaisons, suddenly between that night and the following morning grew up to find the world really quite a harsh, unforgiving place. And I really wanted to get across that idea um, in all of it. And also to really regret the victim it's something I always think is quite sad in books where you aren't encouraged to really to love and to grieve the victim. Um, and that's why I wanted to do sort of half of the timeline from Aurora's perspective. And she's the girl who goes missing. She's the younger sister, the tag-along. Um, she was quite out of place in this group. Her sister didn't really want her there. Uh, it's quite like me and my older sister at that age. <laughs> and uh, she was quite a spectator to everything that goes on until the point where she gets drawn in. Uh, and her inner voice hopefully comes across through those, uh, those segments from her point of view uh, to make us feel that she's a real living, breathing person who, who was lost to the world because of one, uh, one night and its events. I think one of the things that's also very interesting is this, is to see the way that uh, the shadow of that night has, has infected these lives afterwards. The, the bright, promising lives that, that walked into the forest that night are irredeemably changed. And, and you explore that, I think, with, with real, real insight and empathy. Yeah, that, was, that, that was, I think, quite um, quite interesting thing to do, is to try and map out what would happen to these people. And it, it's something, actually, that the uh, DCI, Jonah Sheens, who is uh, quite central to it all, uh, spots, which is that, actually, some of these kids have gone on to be quite successful in traditional terms. And he's kind of looking for damage and lack of success and failure. And then he starts to realise that in some ways this seeking for sort of real success is part of the damage they've experienced. They want to feel some kind of certainty uh, in the world. They want to feel sort of that the world's a good place once again. And that's how they've gone for it. And in one case, it's meant a huge political shift. Your sort of champagne socialist, anarchistic teenager has become a conservative politician. And I wanted to look at how that happens and why. Thank you. Holly. Why, why do we love your book? <laughs> um, 
Well, there are two main elements to my book, from my point of view, which is one is that I spent about 15 years on Fleet Street working as a investigative journalist in different uh, newspapers. This is the journalist end over here. <laughs> <laughs> Segregated off quite sensibly. Um, and um, so a lot of the book is based on my actual experiences doing undercover work and doing investigative journalism and, and that sort of thing, which having done it for 15 years and almost sort of slightly falling into it at first, which sounds like quite a strange job to fall into, but that's sort of how it panned out. Um, I then ended up at The Guardian and spent about eight months working on the Panama Papers, which was this very in-depth, data-driven series of stories, which involved going through millions and millions and millions of documents, which meant I wasn't doing any of the undercover stuff, I wasn't doing any of the traveling, I wasn't doing any of that, which gave me quite a lot of time to almost process what I had been doing before. And that's sort of how I started writing the book originally, which was just sort of like thinking about the sort of behavior that had been part of my life. Because it is, it is definitely a, a very, very strange thing to be doing with your time. Um, and then the other element of it is, as well, during my journalistic career, I traveled a lot. Not as much as you, it doesn't sound like. Um, but, uh, and that meant that I'd sort of been to these places like, uh, in the book, Libya, Lebanon, Jordan in particular, um, and sort of really seen sort of things that had been going on out there that were just... I think in hindsight it affected me more than I realised at the time, because I mean that's just not giving anything away. The theme of your book, that kind of you sort of go from place to place and you sort of absorb the stuff, but you don't really take on board what you're. Of course you take it on board, but you don't really sort of realise the impact it's having on you because you're very much just writing it down, processing it, sending it back. Um, so it's just those two elements basically: there's investigative journalism, but there's also this international how actions affect have like long-term massive effects on things in a way that you don't necessarily anticipate. Yeah. And for me, you know, as, as a former journalist too, what, 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 I, no, what I felt I, I, was, was the, the authenticity of how an investigation proceeds and the excitement of that when you start to feel you're getting close to something but you're not quite sure what it is. And I think one of the compelling elements of, the, of this book is you just have to keep going forward. In, and, and I felt very much it was, you know, when you're doing an investigation, there is that, that sense of drive. You get up in the morning and think, what, what's next? What do I do next? And those intense frustrations... When, when the investigation stalls because you just have to wait for the next, the next break in the investigation, yeah. the next person to actually be in the right place for you to talk to, and that sort of thing. And, and so I think you, you, you brought all those elements together very cleverly to make a good fiction out of that sense of, of urgency. Well, it's, you know, obviously by the time it appears in the newspaper, you're at the end of the story, which yeah. you're very much not all the way through the process. And you kind of, you're aiming to get to this one place, but you don't actually know if you're going to get there, you don't know how you're going to get there. Um, and it is, you know, it's just, you put it together bit by bit by bit over quite a long period of time and things surprise you. And also, the fundament, when it appears in the paper at the end, it looks like it was all one big plan, but it never is. It's chaotic, it's bizarre. You end up in countries you never even anticipated end up in. You know, it just, it's, by the time it's in the paper, it's sort of like, palatable. It's just that journey is yeah. complicated. Yeah. You're not going to tell us about the sort of bad nights in terrible hotels <laughs> and, or, or in uh, terrible airports. I, yeah, terrible, terrible airports. <laughs> yeah. And, and many, many nights on planes. Yeah. For some reason, they are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Steve, you know, you know now what's at the heart of all four of these books. I mean, I'm amazed you're still sitting here and not like heading out to get first in the queue. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, um, you know, People often talk about genre as if it's some sort of uh, terrible ghetto that uh, people do when they can't do anything else with their lives. But, uh, what, what, but what drew you to, to writing crime fiction, Ayinka? Um, the thing is, when I was writing this, 
you know, even though, you know, so as a reader, I read a lot of crime. I read a lot of fantasy as well. Um, but I also read a bunch of other stuff. It's just generally, if I'm in the mood, I'll generally gravitate towards the crime section or the fantasy section. Um, but when I was writing this book, I didn't think that I was writing crime um, because, you know, in the, um, it's not a mystery in the traditional sense because you already know who the murderer is. Um, so, at the time, I didn't realize, um, I didn't think of it as, as crime, but I didn't think of it as anything. You know, it was just um, a story that I thought would entertain me. And <laughs> I could only hope that other people would find it entertaining as well. But first and foremost, it was such a delight to write, and I enjoyed writing it. And all the genre questions actually came after um, I had gotten a publisher, the publishers figured out where it would sit. And I just, you know, I went along with it because it was, it was fine. Um, but, um, but yeah, so far it's been, I can see obviously there's, there's a death in it and there is the sense of um, are they going to get caught? There's that going on. And like you said, there's a lot of moral ambiguity in the, in the story. So in that sense, but I, I can't really answer the question because I wasn't thinking of it as a crime novel when no. I was writing it. As a reader, what, what draws you to the genre? Um, I think it's just, I imagine what it was, just, you know, in your, you kind of, you're solving the crime, you're solving it as a reader. You want to figure out, you know, oh gosh, is it this person? And I, I rarely do, except on film, but it, like when I'm reading it, I rarely get who the killer is. But just, I think what I really love about crime is p the people, the relationships, the dynamics, um, you know, seeing what people do when they're cornered and when they've got no room to, to go, how th that darkness that I think is in each and every one of us, mm -hmm. but on a day-to-day -day basis, we don't, um, we don't have to contend with it, but it's there. Um, so I think that's really interesting, seeing how far people will go, seeing what people's relationships are like, relationships that, you know, between mothers and um, their daughters, between husbands and wives, and just seeing these weird, strange dynamics. Yeah. I think you clearly um, assimilated all those lessons, because <laughs> it is the relationships that are at the yes. heart of this, this book, and yes. those characters, uh, and, and how far people will go when they're cornered. And believe me, they will go long way. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what about you? What drew you to writing crime fiction? What drew you to the genre? Well, there's a, there's a very serious answer to that. And, um, and then there's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so the serious answer, which is also true, is that it's just such a great framework to, to explore different aspects of writing. Plot, setting, character, emotional journeys. You have social commentary. Um, you know, and at the sake of, of sounding pretentious, you know, the human condition, the, it, it's, it's a very broad format. If you read all our, of our four books, you'll see how varied they are. So it's this wonderful platform, if you like. Um, but the truth is, it's just such fun to do. I don't know about you, Holly. After journalism, you know, fact-checking, protecting sources, <laughs> worrying about them, you just go and make stuff up. Geetha, <laughs> <laughs> what about you? See, I mean, I, I grew up on a, on a diet of, well, apart from my dad's sci-fi collection, it was largely my mum's Agatha Christie, and she really likes a cosy crime. Um, and I hoover those all up. And I think... 
probably it took me until quite recently to realise why I started to become quite dissatisfied with, with all of that leg of fiction, because what happened to me then is far too young, to be honest. Um, onto my horizon appeared your books, Val, and Ian Rankin's. <laughs> and um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of really gritty, um, fantastic crime that really had feeling to it. And I think one of the things that crime does so well as well is has social awareness. That You have people in all different walks of life, and you're really looking at them at their best and at their worst, in terrible times, um, but maybe being stronger than you'd expect, and, and just being uh, real three-dimensional people. And that's what I absolutely loved in those books. Um, and apart from being a trifle scarred, I think they had a very good, <laughs> good impact on me. Um, and I think that what that uh, then kind of gradually sort of showed me was the slight lack in, in perhaps, I think, what people think of as traditional crime. And I think where people sometimes can be dismissive of it is that you're encouraged in a certain brand of crime not to care for your victims. You're, you're encouraged to, to not worry about them because it's a puzzle, isn't it? It's just, uh, you know, it's an excuse for a crime. And I think, you know, that's fine. Um, but uh, it did strike me as very strange when I reread the 453 from Paddington quite recently. And there's a bit where the detectives are standing outside uh, the body of a dead woman in a, in a barn. And two 14-year-old boys bowl on up and say, can we have a look? And uh, the detective goes, oh, go on then. And <laughs> 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 uh, uh, it's just extraordinary. And, uh, and I think that was my sort of blinding moment of revelation where I thought, yeah, this is why um, <laughs> I sort of moved on to something different. Because to me, I want to feel that that woman mattered. And, uh, and I don't think it's just, you know, because it's crime in the age of me too. I think, you know, that we... Perhaps we're looking for more, some of us, uh, than, uh, than just an excuse to have a Poirot or a Marple pop in and exercise their grey selves. Do you think that the working in the theatre made you more conscious of the need for demonstrating motivation and demonstrating that things had a purpose? I think that's very true, and I think that with theatre in particular, you are so led by your characters. Um, and in fact, one of the odd things is you get your own voice completely out of the way in writing for stage. If your voice gets in there, your characters don't sound like real people, so you have to be them, not you. Um, and in fact, it was a bit of a challenge then, coming away from theatre and, and sort of back to prose, which is always what I wanted to do, to work out what on earth I sounded like, <laughs> because I didn't have a clue. Yeah. Um, but I think, yes, I think you're so driven, every scene happens because of the way the characters behave at every point and there's nothing else to drive it and I, and I do think that has a huge impact on the way um, I've come to then approach crime. Yeah. Thanks. Holly, what about you? What's, what's, what drew you to this? Um, well, I think growing up, um, it was exactly the same. That it was just sort of basically embedded in crime that my mother read it, my sister read it. In fact, my sister was my sister, the serial thief of books. <laughs> like, we used to have like these terrible fights. And Anyway, moving on from that. Um, but I didn't actually, again, really set out to write a crime novel in particular. I think I started writing it because I was sort of, sort of thinking about how investigative journalism had worked and you know, where it was going. And how, you know, as, as you said, the title is, you know, Who Should Throw the Lions Today? That was my news editor talking about a human being that we were sort of treating as a form of not, it's, not, it's not entertainment, it's not justice, it's some sort of weird merger of the two, but it's not quite clear what the priority is at any point. So it's just all these sort of complicated things. But I started writing it, and then quite quickly it sort of... I think the crime was more embedded in my sort of psyche than I realised, so it just sort of turned into a crime novel without really planning it to be. Um, and the sort of two central characters, who are two women uh, working together, um, yeah, they just sort of emerged like that and <laughs> went for it. Yeah. And I think, uh, th uh, in a way, the, the journalist craft leads it, lends itself to the writing of, of crime fiction because, as a journalist, particularly an investigative journalist, you, you understand how investigations are carried out. 
in non-traditional ways, if you like, i.e. not by the police, but how, how these things are. Where you understand what can be done and what can't be done. When you're sort of, obviously there's a lot, a lot of detective novels and they're fantastic in all their different ways, but I just, I find it quite interesting sort of removing it from that traditional mm. format and having two journalists, because it's not as straightforward as, you know, the police, well actually not always, but you know, when the police are kind of just, you know, trying to resolve it to, you know, solve a crime, fine. Whereas in journalism, it's much, much more layered than that. And even, you know, up to the comp competition between different newspapers, the fact is you want the story, but you want to get the story first. And that's the absolute priority, you know, and so it's just always these sort of amb these ambivalence ambivalencies. My brain is fried mm. today. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Holly's just had a baby, by the way. <laughs> so we have to forgive her any incoherent in sentences. Yes, yes. Words I have no not, excuses. <laughs> words that are not really words. I'm sorry about that. The book, they're all actual words. <laughs> um, but yeah, so exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Not, and, and I think this is this is all this fascinating stuff. I mean, it's fascinating for me to hear how you you arrived at this this place. But in the in the room today, I know there will be a lot of people who themselves are aspiring writers. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your road to publication. Well, Yinkan, how did you come to publication on this novel? Okay, so I was actually very fortunate. I've been writing since I was about eight. Um, and my degree, as Val mentioned, is is was in. Uh, creative writing and law. Um, so, I've, you know, my first job after university was in a publishing house. So I've been on the same path for the most part. Um, in 2016, um, a short story of mine was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Short Story Prize, at which point an agency reached out to me. Um, but I didn't have any... Well, I had, I did have a novel, but I didn't have anything I wanted to give them. Um, so I sort of let a year go by, and then in 2017, I thought, oh my goodness, you, you know, in the in 2018, I was going to turn 30. So in the middle of 2017, I started to panic. I'm like, you're gonna, you're gonna turn 30 without having ever even queried an agent, you know, having because I've been working towards the same thing all my life, and you're gonna let 30 come and not even have made any real attempt. Um, so, uh, my sister's serial killer was written in a sort of frenzy. I was freaking out. Um, I wanted to write the great novel, but the great novel wasn't working out. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to do this other piece in the meantime. And then maybe once I'm done with that, like once I've gotten all the weirdness out of my system, I'll be able to write the great novel. Um, so I, <laughs> um, so I wrote it. I wrote it very quickly. Like it was sort of a, a feverish sort of thing. And then. Um, then I self-published it, actually, and um, for almost nothing, because I wasn't, you know, it wasn't the novel I thought was going to um, put me in the public eye, so I wasn't too concerned about it. But I had a friend who, <laughs> it sounds really, but it, it's the truth. I had a friend who, um, who's also a writer, and she's an editor, fantastic, and she, also Nigerian, um, and she told me that she thought it was the best thing I had written, at which point I was a little bit offended. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, other people were um, reading it and, you know, I was getting positive feedback. Not, again, I had self-published it. I wasn't really marketing it, so it was very, very quiet. But, like, I was getting some... F so I looked at it again and thought, Do you know what, maybe it's better than I think. Um, so I sent it to... Um, my agents, but I mean, they weren't my agents at the time, but I sent it to them with the sort of, you know, and basically the email was something like this, like, hi, um, 
you know, I've written this, it was a novella actually, it was smaller than it is now, it's not big now, but it was even smaller then, and I, and I sort of, um, I've written this novella, you know, um, and I'm working on a novel, but just so you don't forget about me, you know, I'm still writing. Um, so um, at the time, the person who had first contacted me, she had moved, she had left the company, but um, my current agent now, she said, look, she's on holiday, when she gets back, she'll read it. Um, then eventually she said, okay, she wants to give me, she wants to call me. And my sister and I were freaking out. Like, I, we <laughs> couldn't work it out. Like, you know, I, I told her, look, they don't publish novellas for first-time authors. You know, what could she possibly be calling? You know, we were, I was, you know, losing it. Um, <laughs> anyway, I can go on forever, but the long story short is they did sign me on. Well, after, I had to double it first, but then they signed me on and, and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm really glad you persevered with something that you thought was just a piece of fluff. Chris, <laughs> <laughs> how about you? Um, well, as, as you said in the introduction, I'd written two non-fiction books that were well-received, but they, they sold almost nothing. So when I said about writing Scrublands, I was just kind of doing it almost, not quite as a hobby, I thought I'd get it published. But I didn't think that it, it would sell that much. I, I, didn't think, you know, I didn't think I'd be sitting in Harrogate, you know, <laughs> talking <laughs> to this huge room full of people. Um, and I think that kind of gave me a sense of freedom. You know, I'd, uh, maybe I'd get it published, I'd have a launch, my friends would come and slap me on the back and tell me how <laughs> great I was, and then I'd go back to my day job. Um, and I think that kind of gave me a certain freedom in that I... Uh, I wasn't trying to meet any expectations or any perception of what the market would be like or what publishers would be like. So it was just, it was an exercise. And I, I just wanted to write some fiction. And when, in my undergraduate degree, my writing teacher, this is for journalism, was a bloke called Peter Temple, who at mm. that stage had not yes. written any fiction, or not that I know of. No. But then later, of course, and if you haven't read his books, they're brilliant. I really yeah. recommend them. Um, and I read his books, and they're very nuanced, and they've got great sense of language and a great sense of place. I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a crack at that. And, um, and then I was very lucky. I had a friend who had a book published. I asked him whether he'd put in a good word with his agent for me. And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, similar story. People were interested, and the next thing I knew, I had publishers... You know, in Australia, in Britain, in the US, etc. Yeah. So it's worth persevering. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you just get in the backwater of non-fiction. <laughs> Keith, how about you? Oh, I'm all with the perseverance. I mean, my first rejection came when I was 14. Uh, when <laughs> I'd written a truly terrible novel. <laughs> and, uh, but in my 14-year-old, uh, sort of very sort of self-satisfied self, I sent it off to uh, Tim Manderson of Transworld, who was at that point you know, sort of a top editor there. Um, and because he's obviously a very wonderful person, he actually phoned me <laughs> to tell me why it wasn't good enough, which was both a terrible, terrible moment for me and also wonderful because he gave me so much encouragement and made me realise that I really needed to learn my craft. And in fact, a lot of what drove me into the writing for theatre was this realisation that, that you have to find a way of getting feedback on your work. And if you're ever thinking of going into writing, 
theatre's brilliant because everybody has an opinion. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you're, you're rehearsing a scene and the actors are telling you they don't think a line's going to work and then finally you get, you know, the director will say something if it's not you uh, and then you get to the point where the lighting guy chips in and then the <laughs> audience, the critics and then the lighting guy again at the end. <laughs> and by that point, you feel you've learned a huge amount about your writing yourself and your tolerance of other people. <laughs> and I, I sort of really wanted to go back into prose ultimately. So I went and did the creative writing MA at UEA and in the middle of that I went to a truly awful author event. Not because um, the authors were bad, there were no uh, sort of official authors there, it was a sort of meet the agents type do. And unfortunately it was just a particular mass of people who all of them just wanted to not ask a question but to tell the agents about their book. And I just thought, how am I going to stand out in this? And I thought the agents, to be honest, looked like they were just rabbits and headlights as well. So I ended up thinking, I'll just go to the sort of nearest few agents instead with my bits I'd printed out, and I went, off I went. And, um, and then by the next morning, I had two of them come back to me, and then they were interested in working with me. And I just thought, this is a silly way to choose an agent. <laughs> it's the nearest <laughs> ones to where I was doing this event. Um, and um, I, I'd had this long-standing ambition to work with Curtis Brown, and particularly I'd met um, Viv Shuster, who works with uh, Felicity, uh, my lovely agent, and I approached them and just said, you know, would you be interested, and um, ended up working with them. And that was not it, because that was uh, some five or six years ago. And the first uh, book that we, uh, we put out, it just happened not to sell to publishers, which actually I think is a lot more common um, than you realise. And uh, Felicity, who, was, who is here, by the way, uh, was fab. She picked me up off the ground because I was absolutely flattened by this. Um, and she just said, you know, this happens. Um, don't worry about it. We're going to be in our, each other's lives for a long time. Just write book two. And, um, and that's what I did. Um, and then, obviously, that was, uh, that was She Lies in Wait. So if I have one message to all of you, it's just do not stop. You know, 21 years later, I would, that's what I'd say to you. Just keep going. It's very clever of you to get that difficult second novel out of the way so early. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was all the master plan. <laughs> Holly, what about you? Um, I think I always, always wanted to be an author, but didn't actually think it was possible. I just sort of, it just seemed like the impossible dream, so I just sort of got on with my life and, and hoped for the best. Um, I think it's incredibly useful, something like journalism, because you actually just get so used to filling a screen. You basically have a satanic news editor standing over your shoulder saying you need 2,000 words by 4 o'clock, and you just, you lose the fear of, you know, is this word exactly the right one? You're just like, get it down, get it down, get it down. <laughs> um, so that was really helpful for that. Um, and then I think in my there's one truly, truly terrible chiclet novel attempt somewhere in my past, which I think I've recovered all the copies and burned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Um, and so, eventually, as part of being a journalist, at one point I was going to write a uh, book about uh, political party funding, which would definitely not have been a page turner, and also it turned out incredibly legally disastrous. <laughs> so that died a death, but again, luckily. Um, but as part of that, I met my agent, um, he's a wonderful man called Andrew Gordon at David Heim. He's just, if you find your agent, you're just like, you're so great, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd met him and then ended up writing to the Lions. The first draft in particular was incredibly fast. Uh, well, for me, I, I think I wrote the first draft in about six weeks. So I just sort of hammered it out and then thought, oh, I've written a book and sent it off to Andrew, being like, you probably don't even remember me, but we met three years ago over some book. And he came back being like, well, it's a good first draft. And I was like, oh. I thought that was my finely crafted novel. Um, and actually, he was amazing. He went through it several times, and then finally it went out, and um, Raven 
jumped yeah. on it, and they were great. So, yeah, <laughs> they were definitely, it was a very windy path to get yeah. there. But, yeah. brilliant. Well, I think what's, what's clear in all of these, these stories is the importance of getting a good agent. Um, and, and also, it's not just getting an, a, an agent who's really good at the job, it's getting an, a, an agent that you have a relationship with, mm. where they'll be honest with you and tell you what needs to be done to get the book ready and stick with you mm. through the difficult times. I've been trying to get rid of Jane Gregory for years. Yeah. <laughs> she stuck to me like a barnacle, you know? <laughs> it's not true, it's not true. It's not true. Um, and, and, and I think, this, I think it's, these, these relationships are almost like a marriage, your relationship with your agent and then ultimately the relationship with the right editor. Uh, it's yeah. so important for you, for your development as a writer and for your long-term career. And, to have yeah, and when you're doing your first book, you've just got no idea about any of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously coming to someone like Harrogate gives you a huge amount of insight, but at the same time, you know, you're flying blind and you're, you, know, you get an offer from a publisher and, of course, you're just like, yes! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I was incredibly lucky with the Raven team, who are just fantastic. I think two of them are here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but that's, you're so dependent on that relationship, because if it's not right, I imagine it's impossible. Yeah, and I remember when I quit journalism, I made a promise to myself that I was never again going to work with anyone I didn't trust and I didn't like. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> easier in publishing. <laughs> so, and I think I've pretty much managed to stick to that. So, you've had this, this uh, flying start with these wonderful books. What's next? <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is, I mean, it's good that we go off the park of talking about agents, because my agent asks me this constantly. Um, <laughs> she's like, she's like, oh yeah, time is going. Um, but, um, well, I wrote, I've written two short stories this, this year, so um, I think one's supposed to come out in September, I don't know when the other one's supposed to come out. Um, but I'm still in conversation with my agent about what direction I want to go in because my mind, like, I'm, once I settle on something, I write pretty quickly, but it's hard for me to settle um, and to, I mean, I think writing a novel is, is like entering a long-term relationship and um, so you've got to be sure that you want to be in that relationship. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so for me, it's like, you know, if I'm, if, you know, once you start, I, I, am I going to be able to see it all the way through to the end? And um, that's why I struggle because I can, I can write twenty thousand words and then be like, right, I can't, I can't do it. I can't, and then I'll move on to something else. So I actually don't know. Aside from like the short stories I've done now, I don't know what's, what's next for me. So you're kind of doing writing speed dating at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> basically, it's yeah. exactly like yeah. that. Yeah. Chris, what about you? Well, my next book, Silver, which I think people here may have received a proof of in your, in your, go in your goodie bag. Um, so Scrublands came out in Australia in August last year, came out in January here, and the, and the paperbacks uh, just come out here. So the second book is, is already there. I just finished the final proof edits actually on the train on the, on the way up here. So that's... Um, and now, of course... Maybe I, you know, I'm starting to turn my mind already to the next one because I did learn on the second one. The publisher did say something like, I'll be good, nice to have one next year. I that <laughs> but I was just walking around in this kind of, you know, not quite believing what was happening. And then, so, Silver, I basically gave up drinking for January and February and locked myself in a house down the coast and just pumped out. I don't really want to do that again. Mm. But, <laughs> but Silver is the same pr protagonist 
you know, got the same characters, more or less, uh, uh, some of them as, as Scrublands, and now I'm thinking of a third book with, a, with the same people. I look forward to that. Geetha, what about you? What's so um, I recently finished book two, um, so I'm bringing my police investigative team back, um, and I sort of ended up writing it sort of quite soon after finishing She Lies in Wait, partly because there were so many things that I wanted to do with my characters, which I just did not have room for in book one. And I think that's one of the very nice things about having that series, about you know, feeling that you really want to, to explore these characters' stories and to see where they develop. Um, so that one is, um, I think the cover's going to be revealed soon, and I, when I saw it, I actually squealed, so yeah. I hope you like <laughs> it as much as I do. <laughs> and um, then, uh, I, so I've just cracked on with um, the beginning of book three now, so yeah, looking yes. forward to And um, uh, should I do a little, a very, very short bit on book two? Is that yes, useful? yes, um, So book two follows on, as I said, and um, it's uh, about a young man who's Skyping his girlfriend, and during the call, an unseen person comes in and kills her, and then leaves. And he unfortunately has his own reasons why he very much doesn't want to go to the police, um, and is feeling that he's in a, an impossible situation. So um, that's, that's where it kicks off. Wow. That sounds interesting. How soon will that be in, in my hands? <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> Um, so, actually, apart from the, the, the exigencies of a very small baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, actually, when I signed with Bloomsbury, it was a two-book deal, which was obviously amazing from my point of view, but like, I got really excited, and it's brilliant, it's, but at the same time, they're suddenly getting pregnant, certainly livened things up on deadlines and everything else like that, but it's going fine. Um, and I think... I'm, I'm writing a sequel to the first one, which I'm very much enjoying doing, but it's definitely been a bit of a learning curve because there's obviously a million, zillion articles on the internet about how to write your novel and everything else, but it turns out, and I know because I've looked fairly comprehensively, there are no articles on how to write a sequel, which is a shame because I think it wouldn't be read by many people, but it'd be read very intently by those people because it's a real learning curve, like how much you put in of the first one, you know, how much you have to run through what the character, who the characters are. You know, you can't assume that somebody's read the first one. So it's just all these complications that just when you're writing the first one, you just obviously don't occur to you at all. So it's been a real learning curve writing the second one. Um, but I very much enjoyed doing it. And I, actually, I sent it through to my agent two days after my due date, which was interesting. <laughs> so <laughs> filed it off at the last minute. So it's, yeah, hopefully yeah. it'll be... Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that, that, about that thing about nobody telling you how to write a sequel. Um, and certainly we don't always know that we're going to be writing a book that requires no. a sequel. And when I wrote The Mermaid Singing, I thought it was a standalone. Um, and here we are about to... About to Published number eleven, <laughs> and it is that thing of you. You look back and you think, if I was, if I had known this was going to be a long-running series, I might have done one or two things differently. <laughs> um, and it was quite different from the Kate Brannigan books, which I started from the beginning, knowing we're going to be a, knowing it was going to be a series. So I think that those choices that you make sometimes come back and, and bite you. Uh, it but seems you like just have to learn to live with it, and that's part of your part of the process of, of developing as a writer, is how to discover, is how to, to overcome the challenges, and sometimes they're the challenges you've set yourself unwittingly. Yeah, because yeah, it seems so hubristic to be thinking like long term. Oh, there'll be several of these books, um, but at the same time, if you don't think like that, then you can sort of paint yourself into a corner quite badly, as I yeah, seem to have done to, on one element of. Then <laughs> have to invent another character. I mean, it's like you know. It's, I, I, when I started out, I thought I had maybe five or six books in me. 
<laughs> Maybe I've got five or six books in me. You know, there's, there's a lot of filler in there. <laughs> so, uh, well, thank you very much for being thank so expansive and open with us about what you've been doing. And we've now got an opportunity for you guys to ask some questions. Um, Who would like to kick us off? Am I, am I going to have to start picking on people? It's a very uh, easy question. Your titles, did they come at the beginning, the middle, or the end? Um, yeah. My title, actually, my agent, who's fantastic, Claire Alexander, she named my book. Um, and initially, I, was, I, didn't, I wasn't a massive fan of the title um, because I thought people might think it was true crime. I thought it was a bit on the nose, but she was like, trust me, you know, it's... People are loving it already when she was sort of taking it about. And so I trusted her, and she's not filled me yet. Um, and people seem, and it's worked for me, so I didn't have anything to do with it at all, basically. Chris? Um, my working title for Scrublands was Riversend, which is the name of the town, and only quite late in the piece, there's an area outside, uh, outside the town that's integral to the plot. And I thought, oh no, Scrublands, that's a much better title. Um, with Silver, it's set in a fictitious town called Port Silver. I just, I, I just couldn't think of a title. And so that was really came from the publishers. <laughs> I said, that'll work. Shot yeah. word. <laughs> so I, I wrote the whole of She Lies and Wait with the working title 1983, um, which Felicity <laughs> did point out might be a bit confusing. <laughs> and um, see, my logic was. It's the year before 1984, right? Um, <laughs> it's when everything goes really badly in the Orwell novel. And I figured these teenagers, everything was fine, and then it all goes wrong. So anyway, long story short, we bashed around lots of titles, and Felicity won. <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. It's great. <laughs> um, I, yeah, again, I can't remember the working titles that I had, but they were really bad. Um, and then eventually... I end up sending a whole long, long list of titles to Alison Hennessy, my editor, and she picked out a different one at first. And I actually, to the lines, I mean, quite near the top. Um, and then she, we went with the other one for a bit, and then eventually she was actually, no, I think it should be to the lions, and that was that. Yeah. I, mean, I, I really like yeah. it as a title. Yeah, I think the titles sometimes end up being as they are for unexpected reasons. Um, when, I, when I wrote um, uh, The Retribution, uh, the, I wanted to call it, initially I wanted to call it Inveterate Scars, because it's sort of a sequel to Wine and the Blood, although it's much further down the series. Uh, and that's the second half of the quote from the T.S. Eliot poem. Uh, and, and I p pitched this to my editor, and he sort of looked at me as if I was slightly mad and said, <laughs> how am I supposed to sell that to Asda? <laughs> <laughs> so then I, then I decided Unredeemable, because that comes in the same passage of, of the poem. And the art department came back and said, no, that's too long a title for the paperback. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, by that time, I was just fed up. Uh, <laughs> and was sort of called, it ended up being called Retribution. Okay. So funny things, titles. Um, I'm currently listening to My Sister the Serial Killer on Audible. So I just want to know if the authors listen to their books on Audible and what they think of them. Um, I've heard an ex like a clip from the Audible book, but I can't imagine sitting through the whole thing. I just... <laughs> 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 well, it's a kind of torture, isn't it? Because all you can hear is the bad sentence, <laughs> the infelicitous adjective. <laughs> no. And now I guess cut 
there's two versions of scrubland, something to do with rights. So there's, there's one here and there's one in Australia read by different actors. I can't bring myself to listen to them. They've sent, they, in Australia, they actually sell the audio books. You know, it's a set of like 12 CDs. And they sell them out in the petrol stations on the, on the highways out in the bush. <laughs> so the truck drivers or, you know, people who are driving, you know, long multi-day trips and that buy them. But after doing the edit and a different edit for the United States, it was kind of like, I just, I will at some point. I know I will, but I, no, I can't, yeah. can't bear it. Yeah. See, I, I've listened to quite, um, quite a lot. In fact, I think the only bits I haven't listened to are the two chapters I did, <laughs> for obvious reasons. And uh, there's a prize if you can spot which they are on the audiobook, by the way. Um, the clue is, they don't sound as professional as all the other chapters. <laughs> yeah. But it was great. No, I went into the studio and I listened to lots, and I, I, it was so lovely, actually, to hear it, uh, to hear it brought to life. It's, I suppose that's, again, it's some, a process I'm quite used to with the theatre, so in a way, I loved it. Yeah. Mm. Um, my, they're actually being recorded at the moment, um, so I haven't, I haven't had the opportunity of listening to them yet. And it's the same. They're being recorded in America and the UK by different... But it's quite... They send you a list of... of people being like, which of these voices do you think would be good for it? And I was yeah. just like, yeah. and in my case, the book sort of being, it's sort of probably late 20s woman from London. And so they sent like four different voices and I actually, I could not tell them apart. So I had to email back being like, whatever you think is best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I occasionally drop a, a Scots dialect word into my, my books uh, and the Americans have great difficulty with this. <laughs> in the east of Scotland, we have a word, the, the word har, which is a kind of sea mist that comes in when you've got warm weather and it comes in off the sea. Um, and so one of my books begins that the har was rolling in from the River Forth. And the American audio of this was, the hair was rolling in from the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, no. <laughs> but in Thank my you. case, they've asked for like how, how words are pronounced, which is fine for some of them, but some of them are just made up because their names are companies or something else. And I'm just like, mm, whatever, however you feel like doing it. <laughs> Oh, hi. Um, about three weeks ago, I finished writing my first novel, and um, I'm in the no-man's land of looking for an agent. I wondered if you could each give me a piece of advice to get me through this period. Uh, <laughs> okay, so, um, I mean, before I found my agent, what I did actually was, I mean, I've said how I found it was, it was purely, you know, but um, before that, I actually compiled a list. I bought the, so I had, I used to buy quite regularly the Writers and Artists Yearbook, so they have, like, all the, the agents and all of that there, um, and I would, you know, I had an Excel document, I'm not saying you should go, but I had an Excel document, and I would write, I would put all the auth, um, agents that interested me, um, the ones that were looking for the sort of stuff that I wrote, and um, because I was prepared for rejection, so I, I had a long list, maybe like 50 to 60 agents. Um, you know, my, my plan was to do them in blocks of 10 so that you don't end up being, you know, because you don't want to send off like a mass, you know, agents don't like that. You want it to be personal, and so I would just do it in little or blocks of five. That was my plan. I never actually got around to doing that because of the way that I got my agent, but, um, you know, I, I've also read up, because the good thing about the writers and artists, yeah, because it also talk you through um, how to query an agent, the kind of things, you know, agents themselves write pieces. So I would definitely suggest that book if, if that's the stage that you're in. Mm -hmm. 
I think what's something that's also quite helpful is that if, if, you, if you look at what's already published out there and you see other, other authors that are writing broadly in the same area that you are, um, ask if you get the opportunity to go to an event that they're doing, ask them who their agent is and, and then follow that up with a letter. And often in the, in the acknowledgements, the author, you know, they'll, they'll thank their publisher, but they'll definitely be thanking yeah. their agent. Yeah. yeah. And, but absolutely, I'd recommend trying to find an agent. Don't be deterred if you, if you fail at the, at the first go, but it's a, it will work much better for you, both in the short term and the long term, rather than approaching publishers directly. Is there anything either of you would say? I'd, I'd say um, you need to know how to write a really killer synopsis. And I think I really didn't know how to do this before I went to UEA. And then one person said to me, you've just written a series of plot points. How on earth is anyone supposed to keep track of that? And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> really have. And I think just knowing your actual story and however you meet someone in person, you can actually sum that up in one sentence and talk intelligently about it is so, so useful. Uh, and I th and I'm, I'm sort of assuming that most agents are, are like me, that if someone sends me something where I can't really understand what's going on in the, in the covering letter or synopsis, yeah. I'm less likely to engage with it. Yeah. I think so just be prepared to be really thick-skinned about it because it's just there will be rejection. And there'll be rejection at every point in proceedings. And it's totally fine because it's so, it, you know, it's so subjective publishing. You know, one person will like it, one person won't like it. You've all read books. You like this one. It's done hugely, you know, or you, you've read something that's done phenomenal numbers and you just didn't like, you know. And so be thick-skinned. Don't worry about it. Everybody gets rejected a lot. So thank you. Um, and I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up there because we've, we've run out of time as much as we'd like to continue. Um, so I'd like you to show your appreciation for these four. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit Harrogate International Festivals dot com.